rearrange the furniture just a little bit here. Um, if you didn't grab one, go ahead in the back. There is these little booklets here. I think Ryan mentioned it on the front end. Um, this is the entire copy of Ecclesiastes. Um, and so it's got the text on one side. It's got a blank page on the other. This is a great, op- great way to take notes, uh, do some study during the week, take notes during the sermon. So all adults, if you'll grab one of those, that's a helpful thing to have. Um, I'm going to try to use that to keep us, keep us going here. Um, we are going to start a new book. We finished 1 John last week, and uh, we will see quite a contrast from 1 John to the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, but hopefully it will be a good one for us as we come together. So the sociologist uh, Jonathan Kozel in his book, he, he tells a story about meeting uh, Mrs. Washington uh, and her son. He met her son and him in the South Bronx in a homeless hotel uh, close to the East Tremont Avenue, and the mother and child lived on the first floor with three steel locks on the door. Kozel, when he met Mrs. Washington, she was dying And Kozel continued to come back to visit her, and she was weaker and weaker. But oh, the stories she would tell of the underside of urban America. She would tell stories about poverty and and injustice, about violence and drugs. Mrs. Washington told Kozel about the children in her building that were born with AIDS, and about the 12-year-old at the bus stop who was hit by stray gunfire and was paralyzed. She told him about the physical abuse she suffered from the hands of Mr. Washington about all the difficulties the poor people had in the community of getting medical care for themselves and their families. The woman and her son also talked about spiritual things, Kozel said. I wondered how powerful God is, young David admitted in one interview. He must be wise and powerful to make the animals and the trees and give man organs and a brain to build complex machineries. But he is not powerful enough to stop the evil on earth. To change the hearts of people. On one subsequent visit, Kozel looked down at Mrs. Washington's bed and saw her Bible open on her quilt. The sociologist asked what she likes to read. And she said, well, Ecclesiastes, of course. If you want to know what's happening these days, it's all right there. It's right there in Ecclesiastes. Interesting words from a woman that's known suffering. And I don't know if we would say that. Ecclesiastes. Most of us haven't read it, and if we have read it, we probably don't know a whole lot of what it's about. It's one of those books that's often misquoted, uh, certainly misunderstood, and yet, I think as we engage it, we're going to find some really deep and meaningful things in this strange book, but sometimes uh, seemingly contradictory things. Um, The worst part for us uh, is that we have to wait to the end to find the answer. It's uh, us Americans don't like that. <laughs> we have to wait and wait and wait to find the answer. I spoke to a friend this week who's written a good bit on this book, and he encouraged me. I was asking, "What advice do you have for uh, Ryan and I? Are we crazy for trying to tackle this book?" He said, "Yes, you are, but um, but it's helpful to get the first week just to give an overview because it's it's a bit disorienting. It's not like most of the rest of Scripture. Um, it's it's confusing how it's." spoken of it's the the phrases the language and so he said give a big picture so people can have some categories so we're going to try to do that today hopefully this will be uh not too much of a lecture or still a sermon but uh, i'm going to try to give an overview of the book because i think it's going to be a really fruitful study for us 
um, as we move forward. So what do we find in Ecclesiastes? The first thing we find is it's an unexpected voice. An unexpected voice. Um, Ecclesiastes, much of it is poetry. It's not prose. Uh, It's not straightforward. It sounds like a riddle. Listen to this. Chapter 1. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lackey cannot be counted. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the stream flow, there they will flow again. If the clouds are full of rain, they, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. There's a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what has been planted. A time to kill, a time to heal, a time to break down, a time to build on. He keeps going, a time to, a time to. It's great news, right? Aren't you glad you heard that? You can go home now and you've heard the word and so applicable to your life. Uh, it's not that way, right? It's poetry. It's, it's proverb. It's poetry. It takes some work. It's like reading Shakespeare or Emily Dickinson or Robert Frost. Or I don't know who you read, poets, but it takes some work. It, there's deep truth. There's deep meaning. There's lots to it, but it's not apparent on the surface. So you've got to sit with it and you've got to wrestle with it. You've got to work at it. That's hard work. We don't know what to do with poetry. We have to wrestle with concepts. Philip Ryken says it's, uh, it's sort of like a, a philosopher writing after meeting with a poet on a Monday morning. <laughs> it's Ecclesiastes, the musings, philosopher poet on a dreary Monday. Uh, it's poetry. We need to know that. Second, it's from a preacher. Uh, It starts off this way, the words of the preacher. Uh, That's probably the best translation. It means the the words kohelet. It means uh, the the convener of an assembly, a religious assembly. So preacher is probably the best. It's the person that's organizing the religious gathering. But we hear the word preacher over. It says, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Most likely this is Solomon. Um, There's some dispute, but likely Solomon, certainly Son of David, king in Jerusalem, speaks of wisdom, speaks of wealth, speaks of power, fits the mold of what Solomon had experienced. Yet this is a rare preacher. You expect someone with his wealth, his influence, his power to stand up, to give the sermon, and to give what? Some dynamic charge, right? Think about political season, you know? Someone with power standing behind the lectern. And he gets up there and the preacher says, All which God gives in this life amounts to little more than an unhappy business. What good is all my toil under the sun? It's vanity. Says in 2.17 that I hated my life. Strong's language. You don't expect us preachers to talk like that. Did you know, did you know this was in Scripture? Did you know Scripture spoke like that? It's a bit confusing. It sounds more like a, you know, an angry teenager, hormonal teenager. I hate my life. I'm so mad at my parents. Right? <laughs> but this is the preacher. This is the one that's supposed to come up and deliver the word and have it together, give you instruction. And he says, I hate my life. Everything you do, all of it, not some of it, all of it is meaningless. Well, thank you, preacher. Appreciate that word. Thanks a lot. It's helpful. 
We don't expect God talkers to use language like this. But this is what it is. It's the words of a preacher. We expect uh, things tied in a bow. We expect theological truths and doctrine. And yet we get more questions than we get answers. But it's from a place of age and experience. And this is one reason I think it's helpful for us. We're a young church, both in time. We just started not too long ago. And we're young in age. Most of us are pretty young in here. And so we need someone ahead of us. This is Solomon speaking to us who's lived some life. He's had some experiences. And he speaks back from wisdom, from life, from difficulty, the joys and the sorrows Zach Eswine in his book, his commentary, he uses the example of imagining two tour guides in Poland. Imagine you had two tour guides and they're they're taking you on bus tours and they're going through the historic realities of what happened in Poland. They're going through Warsaw and they're going through the concentration camps at Auschwitz and they're, they're talking about the tragedies, they're talking about the difficulties. They're both telling the same story. That's why it says, but one guy possesses a qualitative difference from the other. This guy, this guy seems more melancholy, more deep in the eyes when speaking. It feels as though there is something more to the tour for him than just the facts. And during an afternoon break, you learn that this tour guide, that he and his family lived through much of this history. The other guy does not have this heritage. The the facts are the same, but the experience of those facts are different. And we who hear the two speak can feel it. S1 says, it's though Solomon is inspired by the Lord, has, has known something of Eden. He's known the phrase will be under the sun, under the sun, under the sun throughout the book. He's known something of what it was like in Eden to be made for God, in communion with God, to be in right relationship with one another, with creation. He's known that, he's experienced it, and now he's taking a tour of the world. And he's telling us, who don't know Eden, this is what he sees, and so he speaks deep in the eyes. He speaks of the tragedy and the trials of what's become what we were made to be. He describes it. He shows us how to find our way amid the broken sacredness of the world. It's poetry. It's a preacher. It's also honesty, and that's what's helpful. You don't have to be a a Christian. You, You just have to be alive to have a pulse, and this book hits you, right? Um, it asks the big questions. You don't have to be a theology or a philosophy major to ask the questions. Everyone at some point asks the question, what is the purpose of life? Why do we do what we do? What do we do to Monday and then Tuesday? We go to work, we come home, we eat, go Wednesday, Thursday, I can't wait till Friday, Saturday, back to Monday. We just do it over. It's a cycle year after year. We ask the questions, right? There's an There's an honesty about it. Why is there so much suffering and injustice? Where is God? If God is there, does God even care? Is life really worth living? Anyone that's been alive has probably asked that question. If you have it, you probably will. He's honest. Herman Melville, that author of Moby Dick's, called Ecclesiastes the truest of all books. Because of its honesty. An an atheist, uh, the most secular person, wrestles 
in their bed at night with these questions. Why are we here? Does it matter? Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, chapter 1. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by the toil at which he toils under the sun? He uses that phrase, vanity. Some of your translations, well, in this one I think it says vanity. The one I gave you it might say meaninglessness. It's, it's, it's the word hevel. It means like a, a puff of va- air. It's just boom, it's there, and we, we see it, we grab it, it's gone. 38 times in the book, it's vanity. It's gone. All of life, not some things, everything. Work, leisure, vanity. Is, he, is, he, uh, is the preacher, is he honest or is he crazy? Eswan says this, he says, Ecclesiastes sounds like a crazy man downtown. He smells like he hasn't bathed. He looks like it too. And as we pass by, he won't stop glaring at us. And beckoning to us that our lives are built on illusions. And that we are going to die. So most of us choose to get out our lunch at a different spot. At a different corner of town. Meanwhile, S1 says, we usually like our visit to the Psalms. <laughs> it's honesty. It's a wrestling. There's a sense of after you've read this book and you wrestle with it, it's a bit of innocence lost, you know. Like, oh, I've seen, I've seen too much. <laughs> uh, but it's not really innocence because we live in this world and it's fall. It's, it's naivete. It's, it's pretense. You know, it's the, it's the southern woman after, after the miscarriage that sees her friend and says, how you doing? And she says, I'm doing fine. I'm doing great. You know? it, it's the, um, it's the, the funeral you go to and it, it, everybody's only happy. And it's just a celebration of life, and that's it. It may be a celebration of life. But we weren't made to die. We were made to live before God. It's grievous. It's brokenhearted. And so Ecclesiastes sort of pulls back the curtain. It says, are you here? Are you alive? Are you breathing? Do you face the realities, the brokenness, the difficulties to which we live? Are you honest? But the goal of the honesty is not just honesty for honesty's sake. He's not just trying to be blunt. He's trying to seek wisdom. And, and, and that's what this is. This is part of the wisdom literature. If you don't know, we have Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. Five wisdom books in the Bible. They seek to give guidance, to give direction, to give the good life. To show us what righteousness means. What it looks like to live before God. Flourish. We'll see in a minute that this unique voice, this unexpected voice is going to take a different tone, a different method. But its goal is to teach us wisdom. One commentator says it guards us against trite formulas and using truth in a misguided way. We tend to do that. We tend to oversimplify. We take truth and we want to claim it, but what wisdom is after is taking truth and learning how to apply it. In situations, in context, in the life situations that God brings to us. The preacher's not going to leave us in just this blunt place, but he's got to force us to wrestle with it first. It's honest, but it's an unexpected voice. We weren't, we weren't ready for that. That's Ecclesiastes, but it's also an unexpected method. 
Unexpected voice, unexpected method. He's going to say things differently. First, it's personal. Solomon is personal. He, throughout the book, as we read, you'll see it's, it's the I, you know, first person. I, 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 I. You don't read scripture often like that. I said in my heart, Solomon says, I applied my heart to seek and search out wisdom. I hated all the toil to which I toiled, he says. I hated my life. It's approaching the world through the door of experience. That takes a little get used to getting used to. It feels subjective. It feels like is this is this complaining? Can you do that? Like can this be in the Bible? What about the doctrinal truths? How, how, what's happening here? This is the word of God. It's it's uh it's disorienting. It's like uh, how many of you that lost power? You know you lose power and you know the power's out, right? But what do you do when you walk in a room? You, you flip the switch, like inevitably, right? When the power came on, like everything you own is turned on, right? Because it went out in the middle of the night, but all day you turn it on. And you know it's not there. You plug your phone in. You know it's not going to work, but you're so used to this is the way it happens. And this is the way Scripture reads. And Ecclesiastes is disorienting. We've got to get used to the personal nature. It's also, uh, it's, it's also uh, human, Solomon, um, he goes after humanity first. Um, before we talk about a life with God and faith, he talks about what it means to be human. What it means to, uh, to have shared experiences. What it means to struggle. What it means to give voice to the angst of the human life and the difficulties and the, the trials that we all feel and yet feel like we can't name. It's human. You'll notice as we read, the, the language of redemption is not so much there. It's the language of creation. If God is creator and redeemer, he is creator of all things, right? He governs, he upholds all things, Christian, non-Christian alike. Ecclesiastes is here. Redemption is for those who know him, right? For the church. And he talks about it at the end of faith, but he, he majors on humanity. The heartache, the futility of work. And pleasure. It's human. It's personal. It's also inductive. What does that mean? As we read, it's uh, we like to answer up front, right? And then tell me the details. He doesn't do that. He tells you observation. Gives you some more observation. Gives you some more observation. All the way to the end of the book. And he finally gives you the conclusion. He gives you the premise. It's the specifics before the general. Which makes us have to wait it forces us to be patient like there's some weeks we're going to finish the sermon with not a lot of answers we're going to be like, i don't know the end amen and you're like that that's not we like it packaged i like it put together particularly for americans it's uh it's the you know the tv game show like right before they're going to reveal you know they're like oh commercial break you know and you're like no or it's like the TV show, and then right before the main thing, you want to find out what happened, it says, I guess now with Netflix, you can watch the next episode. But it's like, next week, you know, and you're like, all week, you remember that? Like, all week you're waiting to know who did it, who, whatever. That's what Ecclesiastes is. It's like 11 chapters. And so, just by reading it, there's something of the discipline of slowing down, of learning what it means to be common, and be human, and be present, 
It's, uh, it's not Twitter, right? Not 140 characters. It's like a, you know, the, the feature New York Times article. It's like 15 pages. It takes 25 minutes to read. And you're like, I'm going to skim it because I don't want to read all that. That's what Ecclesiastes is. It's, it's not hopeless, um, but it's going to take us through the valley of despair before it gives us out, before it brings us new life. In this inductive method, we find that the preacher is a good pastor um, because he knows the human heart. Uh, he wants to love his people well, which means he's not going to let us stay where we are. It's a, it's a book that kind of shakes you up and forces you to wrestle. Edward Curtis says this, Without question, Ecclesiastes regularly points out things that many people in the church would prefer not to acknowledge. It's, it names the elephant in the room. It's a form of sacred cynicism. It's a back door to allow us to engage things that we couldn't do from the front door of our faith. Derek Kidner says it's demolition in order to rebuild. Finally, before our last point, it it focuses on, in the method, it focuses on the exceptions and not the rules. Um, You know, uh, I before E, except after C, right? Except the word neither, and the word way, and the word, I have to write them down, there's a bunch of them, neighbor, right? It's E before I, and there's no C involved, right? It's the irregular verbs. <laughs> In English, we have a lot of them. That's what Ecclesiastes is. It's, uh, Proverbs is this, if you do these things, generally life is going to work out. Proverbs are not promises. Raise up a child in the way it should go. When he is old, he will not depart from it. It's not a guarantee, but it says if we do this, this is the train. You can expect this. If you work hard and you labor, you can expect it to be beneficial. You can expect to be, have enough provision. Now, if you live a godly, righteous life, you can live long and prosper, right? That's the, ru- that's the rule. Ecclesiastes is the exception. It says sometimes the godly die young of cancer. <laughs> Um, sometimes you raise up the child and then they go wayward and you don't know why. Sometimes you work really hard and you, you labor and you pray and you, get, you lose your job. Right? Those are human questions. We, we ask them, right? How does this happen? What's going on? Proverbs is wise. Live this way. There's blessings. Ecclesiastes says, let's don't be presumptuous. He is the Lord. And he's up to far more than we know and than we can see. It's an unexpected method. Finally, it's an unexpected voice, an unexpected method, because it's an unexpected God. We didn't know God was like this. Ecclesiastes gives us insight into the nature and the character of God. First, he is the, two, two thoughts here, he's the God of the ordinary. We think of God, we think of divine, we think of supernatural we think of healings and miracles, power, the ability to forgive, the ability to raise the dead. Um, but Ecclesiastes shows us that God is the God of ordinary things. It's confusing because he says stuff like, what does man gain by the toil at which he toils under the sun? The answer is nothing. 2.11, I considered all my hands had done and all the toil I had expended doing it. 
and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. There was nothing gained under the sun. It seems as though God is despising the ordinary, despising the everyday, but he's not. The problem is not the stuff, it's not the toil, it's not our pleasure. The problem is not the place, it's not Mobile, it's not Birmingham, it's not Atlanta. The problem is that we seek gain from the stuff and from the place. Adam and Eve lived under the sun and God said it was very good. It's bad and we seek to find from our toil and pleasure what only can be found in God. The hope of the preacher is to show us that nothing matters except in God, in relationship with God, so that he can show us that everything matters. It's subtle. It's confusing. It's it's like nuanced. Nothing's matter. It's all meaningless. But somehow, in union with God, we get to re-enter Eden. We get to walk back into Eden and rediscover life on this earth. Life together. Life in common. Life in ordinary places with ordinary people. With an extraordinary God. John Wesley says, Ecclesiastes proved that there is no happiness outside of God. Derek Kidner says this, the function of Ecclesiastes is to bring us to the point where we begin to fear that such a comment, all is vanity, is the only honest answer, and then we have to face the appalling inference that nothing has meaning, nothing matters. That is, nothing matters under the sun, and we're rid of the gain we're seeking under the sun. We get a perspective above the sun to which we get to re-enter under the sun with God. It's, the, uh, it's like every Hallmark movie, Christmas movie. I, don't, I really don't like these. I don't think the preacher of Ecclesiastes would. My wife likes these. We watch them. It's always in New England or like Canada. It's always snowing and, you know, what, you know what it is. And uh, the, 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 the guy or the girl goes off to the big city, right? And they, they make a ton of money in New York and they're like, trading stocks in Wall Street, and somehow grandma gets sick, so they go back home, and they meet the girl or guy, whatever, but then they, 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 oh, I can't believe I'm back in rural Wisconsin or whatever, New Hampshire, and there's Christmas, and the, you know, and then all of a sudden, through the end of the thing, they fall in love, of course, but they come to be like, life's not so bad in rural Vermont, like, like, life under the sun, this is kind of, this is maybe my lot, maybe I'll give up the New York thing and I'll come, no offense Stokes, sorry I just saw you guys moving to New York, uh, may, maybe I'll give up the, the ambition to see that it's life in a place with people before God. And uh, it's, uh, it's a return to Eden. Mark 8, we read part of it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? For what can a man gain in return for his soul? It's, it's, it's not the problem with the things or the place. It's the problem with the gain, the ambition. Ecclesiastes wants to disabuse us of the ambition. It's the God of the ordinary. Secondly and briefly, it's, it shows us a God of sorrow. Um, most of us learned or thought Christianity is like this like 
carefree, everything goes great. You know, our view of the good life is we love Jesus, life works out, we meet the girl, guy, kids, life, job, money, and then we sit at, at the Caribbean with a little umbrella drink. And like that is the picture of the good life. That's what we're all after, right? That is not what Ecclesiastes says. It totally debunks that. This is what Ecclesiastes says. It says, uh, It is better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter. For it by sadness the face of the heart is made glad. What does that mean? Better is the end of a thing than the beginning. That's great news. Just got married. It's better the end than the beginning. (laughs) It's hard to grasp. Kidner says this, and we're almost done. For when you learn to laugh at everything, you are soon left with nothing worth the bother of a laugh. Triviality is more stifling than tragedy. And the shrug, eh, is the most hopeless of all comments on life. Do you see what he's after? There's this age and experience that's trying to produce depth. That's where wisdom is. It's not shallow. It's not surface. It's not pretense. It's a deep place with God. That, that really, It's the tour guide that's, that's lived through Auschwitz, their family has, and they share it with some meaning. It's a journey. And in that sorrow is the place... We actually get to connect with God. We don't go around the sorrow to God. We connect with God. Do you remember Isaiah 53? This portraying this one that's going to suffer. What's he called? He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one with whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. That's the Lord. He was a man of sorrows. That's how he was described. The Savior, the Lord of sorrows. A Philippian says that there is a, in our suffering, there is a fellowship with Christ in his sufferings in a way that we can't duplicate when times are good. It's the gospel path. It's unexpected. But there's always death before resurrection. We want to do the in-round around suffering and sorrow. But if the Savior, if the Master suffered, who are we as the followers that we would not go through sorrow to suffering? It shows us that sorrow is a part of our faith. The irony is that the suffering one, the man of sorrows, is also the man of wisdom. They're the same man. The Gospels say that there is one who is even greater than Solomon, wiser than Solomon. It's Jesus. Jesus is the man of sorrows, is the wise man. And so the whole book, in an unexpected voice, an unexpected method, is nudging us. It's not plain, but it's hinting us in a direction that we might know something of a God of depth and substance, that we might commune and connect with Jesus, that we might know him in his suffering, that in the end we might know him in his joy. Um, there's, a lot, there's a lot in this book, and that, that was a lot of overview, but I want to have an orientation so as we go chapter by chapter, we can know what we're getting into. There's going to be some difficult things. Uh, I'm excited about it, uh, I'm a little terrified about it, but that's probably a good thing. 
hope we leave wrestling with the Lord. It's only in wrestling that we change and grow. Um, maybe we'll be surprised. Maybe this strange book will show us more of who our God is. We can pray and ask Him. Let's do that. Jesus, thank You for um, Your ways that are not our ways.